Tonight, on your notes, the earlier title I gave it was Be Fervent in Spirit, which comes right out of the text. And when I was kind of titling it, I I thought, How to Keep Your Heart Warm Before the Lord. It's, It's the same kind of idea. Romans 12, 10, and 11. Are are those verses in your notes? Let's read it out loud together, all right? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is not, when you see love one another with brotherly affection, it it might... um, feel like this is just one of those group hug texts, you know, where everyone wants, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, and so let's all be nice to each other and try to be as loving as we can, and that has nothing to do with that phrase in the New Testament. There's a kind of relationship created by the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't exactly in your notes this way. There's a kind of relationship, Romans 12, 1 and 2, the mercies of God flooding my life, my life uh, saved, and then the transformation process beginning, being unshaped from the world and the way the world does things, especially the way the world does love. And so there's a transformation that's going to take place. So what exactly, what is the nature of this, this brotherly affection, this love that... Paul writes about that is created by the Holy Spirit. How is it different? And to get the answer to that, you have to look at Romans 12, 4, and 5. We studied those verses just a couple Sunday nights ago. And and here's what Paul said. Let me read it to you. For as in one body we have many members, that's what this is. Members. Not members of this church, that's a good thing too, but members of the body of Christ. We have many members. The members do not all have the same function. Then he says, so so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually, members one of another. That's interesting the way he does that. Individually... What are you all by yourself, individually? Well, I'll tell you what you are, Paul says. You're a member of another person. In other words, what he does is, he says, individually, you don't count individually. Your place is as a member with others. There is is no individual you in following Jesus. You do have to be saved for yourself. I'm not saved because my parents are Christians. So there's personal responsibility. But once saved... I, I don't exist as just me and a follower of Jesus. You know, we used to sing these silly songs. On the Jericho Road, those room for just two. No more, no less, just Jesus and you. Like, it's not two. You're part of a body, members, one of another. So, again, our text tonight, love one another with brotherly affection. What kind of love is it? It's not the love of friendship. It's it's this kind of love. The relationship between believers and the body of... I would no more reject a member of the body of Christ. And if I did, it's like my body rejecting my kidney. See, we're one body. 
Do you know how fatal that is? When you do a heart transplant and the recipient body rejects the heart because it's part of the same, it's in there, right? So, so the, the DNA is changed. We are members one of another. We're one body. And so you might not know a lot about everybody in this room. But the kind of unity that's been created by the Holy Spirit is different than a Valentine's kind of love or be my buddy. It's the relationship between your finger and your hand. It's, it's, it's the closest parallel Paul can think of. That's why he talks about a body. The closest parallel Paul can think of, the unity in the body of Christ, the closest parallel he can make is a genetic one. Part of the same body. That's how the connection works. Let me do three or four points quickly. First, we are to minister to one another as parts of the same body. We are to love one another as parts of the same family. Minister as parts of the same body. Love as parts of the same family. 12a. Chapter 12, 10a, rather. Love one another with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection is a, it's a, it's a big Greek word, philostorgos. And the English word we get from it is the word storage. And it has to do with the way love in the body of Christ, affection in the body of Christ is literally stored, storage, stored up in the heart. So Paul says, let there, let there be an affection, a grace, a love that isn't brought about by pleasant circumstances. It's not brought about by that. And it's not brought about by how wonderful that other person is in and of himself or herself. That's not what makes the relationship. What makes it is the grace of God stored up in my heart. The love of God stored up in my heart toward brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. There's a kind of love that's stored up. There's a kind of love that's brought into every other relationship in the body of Christ before circumstances sour or are cruel or are mean or are hurtful. It's a love that's brought into it. You don't love your family, your sons or daughters, or your parents because you think they're bright and good looking and always pleasing in everything they do. You love them because they're family. You bring that into it. That's the logic, by the way, behind Paul's exhortation. We're not there yet, but in verses 14, 17, 19, bless those who persecute you. Why? Because your love for them isn't based on the way they treat you. It's the love that's stored up by the Holy Spirit in your heart. Bless and do not curse them. 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul's point, if my love for you is effectively erased and turned into bitterness or anger or revenge when you mistreat me, then I have 
I've done more than merely settle scores with you. I've revealed the nature of the love that was in my heart in the first place, and it wasn't the Holy Spirit's love. Whatever destroys my love for you reveals the nature of my love for you. And a love that can turn to revenge isn't God's love. That's the whole point of this text. God's spirit. It's his spirit that transforms. He creates family. So it's a love deeper than friendship. It's a love that comes from literally the sharing of a divine seed that must never be violated. Now here's the tricky part. So far, so good. But notice what he does in that 10th verse. Notice that this love is commanded. Can you you command love? It's like the Bible commands joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Can you command joy? I mean, isn't that a... Isn't that an emotion, like a a feeling? How how do you command someone to do those things? How can the heart be reached with that kind of order? Love one another. And to get the answer to that, you have to go back to what I said about a month ago. I said was the foundation upon which the rest of this chapter is built. When Paul starts this I mean, the chapter divisions and the verse separations weren't there in the original manuscripts. We all know that. But if you go back to chapter 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, and everything he's going to say about the transforming of the mind and not conforming to the world and how to use all the gifts and how to love brothers and sisters, it, it all grows out of the root of everything I'm asking you to do I'm asking it to be motivated and shaped by your understanding of God's mercy to you. Because if you lose that, you lose the fuel for everything in the Christian life. What did those mercies do when they reached my sin-darkened heart? They warmed a spiritually dead soul. They pardoned an undeserving man. They imparted forgiveness and hope and joy where I merited none and could summon none. The mercies of God caused me to be born into new life. That's what they did. Let me just give you a for instance. This isn't in your notes. What, what, the, the showing of love and the kind of love, what does that have to do with, I beseech you by the mercies of God? And let me just give you the most practical illustration I can think of. Uh, think of a marriage. Here's, here's a couple starting out in life together and a pastor stands here and they go over the vows and they share all these things. They make all sorts of promises and half, 50% of the marriages performed right here at Cedarview. I'm not talking about a global statistic. Christian, non-Christian, the stats are 100% identical. Half of the marriages will end in divorce, 50%. Why is that? I'll tell you exactly why it is. It has to do with what we're studying tonight. Every husband and every wife standing here and exchanging vows, what they need to remember is 
I will never be asked to forgive anything of my spouse that is anywhere near as great as what God has already forgiven me. You see it? You carry that into a marriage and you save it. I will never be asked to forgive my spouse anything as great, not anything as great as what God has already forgiven me. When you stop thinking of the mercies of God, you you lose how to spiritually love. That's the point there. That's the point there. And I was just trying to make it in a quicker way with that, with that illustration. Point number two. I jumped ahead a bit. You already treasure God's work in your heart. Now treasure it in your brother's and sister's heart just as much. Outdo one another. This is the second part of the verse, right? Tenth verse. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. So so what describes the way I show love to my brother or sister in Christ? And Paul says, here's the word, honor. Honor. The, The word honor literally means money paid or a value established. Doesn't seem like it fits very well. But it's all about knowing the worth of something and treating it properly. Knowing the worth of something and treating it accordingly. Showing honor. So somebody, a friend, maybe someone in your family gives you a, a watch and you sort of like it, but it's not quite to your taste. And so it goes in a jewelry box somewhere with other odd bits and it collects dust. Then years later, you take it to a jeweler, and he or she looks at it and says, "Wow, this is a this is a thirty-seven thousand dollar watch." I'll tell you what. You put it on. You do this kind of thing. So, how are you all tonight? There's 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 a fresh appreciation of the worth of something. You didn't appreciate it before. You didn't treat it with the dignity, perhaps, that it deserved. Paul says, that's the way it is in the family of God. We have a certain way that we value ourselves. We're fallen. We're self-centered. Paul says that's one of our problems, by the way. We looked at it in that third verse. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's what we do. So when Paul says, show, here's, how you, here's how you start showing love to brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. He has in mind me showing the honor to you that I quite naturally give to myself. Me seeing the worth in you that I quite naturally see in myself. Giving you the benefit of the doubt the way I'd like to receive the benefit of the doubt. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. Point number three. So the love. It's, it's like genetic. It's the love of the body for itself. Two, showing honor. Now point number three. Serving the Lord is the only way 
to maintain spiritual fervency and passion. So 10, verse 10, just slides naturally into verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Someone came up to you and said, so tell me, exactly how does one go about keeping his first love for Christ? How do you, how do you just keep from getting spiritually old before your time, where the zip goes out of your Christian life? If someone were to ask, how do you keep your heart spiritually aflame? How do you keep apathy at bay? Coolness at bay, hypocrisy. How do you hold it off? What advice would you give? If someone said, you know, the last thing in the world I want is just a kind of a churchiness for Christianity. I don't want to lose my edge. In what direction would you point, him or her? And the reason I've poured out that list of questions is I I can't help but notice something. That... What most people see as the cause of these things, Paul sees as the cure to these things. In other words, it's not just that we're missing the mark, it's that we've got it exactly reversed to what the Apostle Paul teaches. So first, that obvious point, don't be slothful in zeal. Don't don't, uh, allow indifference, apathy to... Cloud your soul. There's all sorts of flaws in us. There's all sorts of flaws in this church. If you, if you have some things you think are really wrong with Cedarview, pop by my office. I can give you a list of hundreds of things that are wrong with Cedarview. But whatever you've experienced and seen, don't become an armchair critic. Don't wallow. Don't be slothful in zeal. So then comes this call to the opposite. We're to be fervent in spirit. I like that phrase. Stay alive inside. Keep your joy. Keep your good attitude. Love others by showing honor to them over yourself. So fervent in spirit. Good advice. How are we going to do it? And that leads to just It flows right into the next part. Serve the Lord. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Only you have to put those last words with what's gone before. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Keep your spirit fervent by serving the Lord. So you start to see now, this isn't some locker room pet pep talk from Paul. Hang in there, guys. Come on. Let's go out there and really serve Jesus. That does nothing. This isn't just an appeal to keeping busy. He's talking about keeping spiritually earnest, engaged, a flaming heart. And and, and he says you can't do it just by attending a service. It's not something you can actually get just at kneeling at an altar, though that's important. You, you, have to, you have to have a life that's truly oriented and dedicated to something big and eternal. 
You have to be drawn into it. You have to serve the Lord. It's not just being busy. It's serving the Lord. Now I want to show you, just as we wrap up, I want to show you one of the greatest examples of it that's kind of hidden and a lot of people don't even know it's in the New Testament. I want to show you one of the greatest examples of people who keep spiritual fervor in serving the Lord. The text is Acts chapter 8, 1 to 4. The execution of Stephen has just taken place. Acts 8, 1. And Saul approved of his execution. So there's Paul. Saul at that point. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Okay? And they were all scattered. This is the Christians now. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, just except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. <clears throat> and entering house after house. Here's, here's, this is the apostle Paul. Entering house after house, he dragged off. Dragged, grabbed him by the hair. Dragged him off. This wasn't escorting people. Dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. And then this sentence. Remember I said earlier there was great persecution, the apostles stayed, and the rest of the people were just scattered because of the persecution. What did they do? Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And I would submit to you, that's a weird sentence right there. These were people who had good reason probably to complain about the way life had gone for them. Uh, somewhere along the way, they had decided to follow Jesus. They were converted, saved. And they tried to remain faithful to the teaching of the apostles. And when they did that, life went from bad to worse. What is it like to watch someone enter your house? There you are, you're sitting, you know, watching Netflix in the family room, whatever. And, and someone comes into your house and, and you're there and your three kids and they, they grab your three kids. They shove you down into the couch. They grab your three kids and they're gone. Or your spouse. And you see them taking them away. You have no recourse. There's nothing you can do. And that wasn't the end of it. Those who weren't dragged off to prison, it says they were kicked out of their homes. Text says they were scattered. So thrown like dice on a table. Scattered. What do you talk about? What do you talk about when you've seen your loved ones arrested and you've been kicked out of your house, you have nowhere to go, and you're just scattered? What do you do with your life? And it's at that point that it says, those who were scattered, they went everywhere preaching the word. What? That's what I meant when I said, you got to give your life to something big. And they somehow had the grace and the vision to see that in all these rotten circumstances, God could still work through them. And everywhere they went, they told people about the wonderful, wonderful Savior who had redeemed them. Oh yeah, and also was the cause of them losing their loved ones and being kicked out of their home. Come to Jesus. Make him Lord of your life. 
And I would submit that what you're seeing there, don't be slothful in zeal, he says. Keep your, keep your spiritual fervor. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Find something big in the kingdom of God, maybe in this church, that you can give your life to. Surprisingly, that's not how you wear yourself out. It's how you keep yourself alive. And everyone said, there's a lot of you, what you meant to say was, I don't believe you, Pastor Don. But it's true. That's how it works in real life. 